Hi, and welcome to The Escape Artist, a podcast for the culturally curious traveller. I'm Edwina Hart, I'm a travel journalist and photographer, and each week I'll be interviewing a special guest who has mastered the art of escape. We'll unpack how travel has influenced their lives and creative endeavours. This podcast is pure escapism for those always dreaming of their next destination. Hi, I'm Steve McCurry. I'm a traveler who's been photographing all over the world for more than 40 years. My guest today is one of the world's greatest living photographers. So in this very special episode and season finale, we're going to look at travel through the lens of the legendary visual storyteller, Steve McCurry. We'll delve into the story behind the photograph that defined his career, the portrait of a young Afghan girl with her torn shawl and piercing green eyes that appeared on the cover of National Geographic magazine in June 1985. It's one of the most iconic images of the 20th 20th century, and easily one of the most recognisable magazine covers ever printed. The portrait is likened to a modern-day Mona Lisa due to her captivating gaze. Steve McCurry has captured many powerful and poetic photographs over an exceptional career that spans five decades, devoting a lifetime to documenting the essence of humanity with a sharp focus on conflicts, vanishing cultures and ancient traditions, as well as scenes from contemporary life. His long-held fascination with photographing far-off places began when he quit his job at a local newspaper and bought a one-way ticket to India. In this episode, you'll get a snapshot of Steve's most memorable travel moments as we hitchhike across the USA, pick fruit on a kibbutz in Israel, swim with sea lions in the Galapagos, and accidentally spend the night in a Buddhist monastery in Ladakh. Of course, some of Steve's adventures aren't for the faint-hearted. He's covered extreme weather events and war zones, survived a plane crash in Slovenia, and got his big break as a photojournalist in 1979 after crossing the border into Afghanistan disguised as a Mujahideen rebel. Here's Steve McCurry. Hi Steve, how are you? I'm great, I'm pleased to be with you. Oh, I'm so excited to have a chance to chat with one of the world's greatest photographers who's had a most extraordinary career, and I feel truly honoured to have you on the podcast, Steve. It's quite amazing to catch you at a rare moment at home and not some off-grid destination. (laughs) And I actually have a funny story before we begin. In the hilltop city of Ragusa, one of the Baroque jewels of southeastern Sicily, I stumbled upon a workshop hidden away down a cobbled street where a young artisan was keeping Sicily's painted, horse-drawn, cart tradition alive. And I felt compelled to take the artist's photograph. And as I was doing so, he actually proudly announced that he had posed for a very famous photographer before. And I just realised whilst looking through your body of work before this interview, that you were the mystery photographer he was talking about. So there's six degrees of separation for you, Steve. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I love Ragusa. I love his art. I love Italy. I've been there many times. Sicily is just a magical place. I wish I could be there tomorrow, <laughs> but uh, uh, I have things going on at, at home. But uh, no, I loved meeting him, and he painted these old cars, these old Fiats, and it was just uh, amazing kind of work that it just uh, it's kind of leaves you in awe. 
Yes, and he masterfully paints the old-fashioned horse-drawn carts in such elaborate detail using these techniques, presumably passed down generations. And as you mentioned, he also decorates those vintage Fiat cars as well. So his workshop is just a treasure trove filled with these fabulous artworks that depict Sicilian folklore in such vibrant colours. It's just amazing. And obviously, it's a real privilege to have one's portrait taken by you. So what drew you to this young man in particular? Well, just how unique it was and the location. It was on this very small alleyway in this very ancient city, in some ways very traditional Italian. And the fact that, you know, we think of Italian art, we think of frescoes and sculpture and paintings and Fiel and Caravaggio and Michelangelo. But here's an artist who today is creating these masterpieces in a very unlikely way, adorning these old cars, which I thought was very, very uh, you know, ingenious and very creative. Well, he was a big fan of yours as well and was extremely pleased to have been photographed by you. It's just so funny because I remember how excited he was to tell me about this grand occasion of having a portrait taken by this famous photographer. <laughs> and I was preparing for this interview and an image of him in his old school suspenders posing in front of this vibrant workshop brimming with antiques and that old Fiat that's beautifully painted. It just clicked. I was like, ah, oh, it was Steve McCurry. Oh, anyway, I could talk about Sicily forever, but let's move on. Where in the world are you at the moment? Right now I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. Oh, and that's where you grew up, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I grew up in uh, a place called Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. I uh, had a great childhood, uh, you know, when played sports and played in the woods and, uh, you know, got in trouble, <laughs> you know, all the kind of stuff you do when you're a young kid. <laughs> and when you were a kid, you were given the nickname Steamroller Steve. Why was that? I think it was just I had all this energy this boundless energy and I would, it was uncontrollable. I was just into everything and always in trouble and very mischievous <laughs> and uh, unstoppable. It just, you know, had this boundless energy. And uh, I think that's kind of where somebody, my cousin or my uncle or somebody gave me that nickname. <laughs> well, obviously that energy has been something that's allowed you to live such an incredibly peripatetic life. Um, now, a question that I always ask my guests, and I'm curious to know your answer, is there a book, a film, a song, or piece of art that has inspired you to travel somewhere? Every summer we would go, we would drive down to, down south, to, to South Carolina, where my relatives, grandparents lived. And uh, we would stop off in these highway motels and eat in restaurants. <laughs> and for a, kind of a young kid to have a, you know, a different setting, it was really an, an adventure to be eating in a restaurant. I was always at home and suddenly we're on the road and seeing all these new things and eventually getting down to see my grandparents who had uh, all these old magazines in their basement, Life magazine and whatnot, to be able to pour over those magazines at faraway places. I remember um, one of the great stories that left an indelible impression on me was this essay by Brian Brake, who's a kind of a wonderful New Zealand photographer, on the monsoon in India. And I remember looking at those pictures thinking, oh my God, this is, this is like another world. So dramatic and the faces and, you know, so I um, kind of put that in the back of my mind. And then when I started traveling uh, 20 years later, that was one of the things I kind of looked forward to was to experiencing life in this sort of uh, monsoon situation. Did you feel restless then? Did you want to see and explore more of the world? Well, at that time, no, I, w I wasn't really looking to travel or faraway places. I, I was more interested in, you know, sports and 
climbing trees and girls. And then later when I was you know, 16, cars, kind of a, a light switch went on. And uh, when I was 19, I started to um, think about travel. I worked in a company. There were a lot of uh, executives coming in from all over the world. And I started meeting people from Turkey and Kenya and Japan and and Europe and South America. And, and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. All these people, there's a world out there and uh, it's, it's fascinating and, and I want to kind of see it. So that's when I set my sights on going to Europe. That was my first sort of experience uh, and spending a year kind of wandering around uh, that part of the world. And, and then I was really hooked and I, I decided whatever I do in my life, I want travel to be a part of it. Mm. Well, it sounds like that trip to Europe had a huge impact on you and your life. What did you get up to during that year abroad? Well, I flew to London and spent a um, few days there. I had this, they call it a Eurail pass, which is a pass for 30 days and you can travel on the train every day if you want. You know, every day I was on the, I would like sleep on the trains. So I was in Spain and uh, Austria and, and the Netherlands and France and Germany and I just went everywhere. And um, and I worked in a restaurant in Stockholm for a couple months and then went to Amsterdam and worked in another restaurant there for three or four months. And uh, a couple of friends, we got together, got an old Volkswagen and drove through Bulgaria and Yugoslavia to Istanbul. So this was like 1969. This was when you know, this is kind of era of the hippies. And so one of the things on the hippie trail, there was, you know, there was Kathmandu and Goa, but a lot of people went to Israel to work on a kibbutz because, um, you know, you could live for free and you got, you know, free food and everything. So we um, went down to Israel, we picked bananas and worked in the fields. And then after a bit of time, I decided I got to go home and go back to school. So I flew back. In fact, I flew to Los Angeles and met a friend and then I hitchhiked across the U.S., which was an experience in itself. Ah, oh, I bet it was. We love road trip stories on this podcast. Do you think you could tell us a little bit about the journey? Well, yeah, you know, so I was with his friends and said, well, we're going to drop you off at this really great place to hitchhike. It's really great. You'll get a good ride and all that. And we, we smoked a couple joints, got really stoned. I got out of the car and I put my thumb out and, and just sort of this dumb luck. The first ride, the guy said, I'm going to Oklahoma. Is that a good... <laughs> That's like halfway across the country on the first ride. So I jumped in and off we went for, I don't know, a day and a half. And then um, from there, I in 11 rides, I went from uh, L.A. to Philadelphia, uh, traveling 24 hours a day. Wow. Even at night, I was hitchhiking. And again, this was a time was kind of very casual and, you know, hitchhiking was very normal. And at the last ride, the, the person actually drove me right to my doorstep. I said, you know, I just came from L.A., this is the last ride. And they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll detour and take you home. <laughs> so that was great. Well, that's a gold star hitchhiking service, if I've ever heard of one. Now, that gap year, I guess, is what we call it nowadays, must have been such an invaluable learning experience for you. Did you always know that you wanted to become a photographer or did you fall in love with traveling first and then find your calling? Well, when I went back to school, I always enjoyed photography. I used to wander around Stockholm uh, just doing like street photography. But as far as a profession, it started when I took a class in cinematography and decided that, you know, really I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I, I started studying that, theater classes, acting. And I realized that there was a lot of work involved in making films, a lot of pre-production, a lot of post-production, very expensive. And then in the middle of that, I took a, a class in still photography. And that suited me much better because you get a couple rolls of film, you get your camera, walk out the door, and boom, you're ready to go. 
It was this sort of capturing the serendipitous moment on the street and just following your nose around and meeting people and candid photographs and portraits. But it was all kind of on the fly. It was all unplanned. And uh, whereas the film was uh, highly, even the documentary uh, filming was a lot of planning. It was also this kind of group effort. And whereas with the still photography, it was more of a solitary endeavor, which suited me, you know, I I decided, you know, I want to be able to go where I want, when I want and shoot how I want to do it. So I decided that's, that was the direction I was going to go in. With a fairly inexpensive camera and some film, I could literally just go out and work. I really had my sights set on on travel. And uh, I was looking at travel magazines and I thought, you know, some way, somehow I'm going to travel and have these pictures and have them used by textbooks and magazines and maybe books and whatnot. So that that was really, uh, I was willing to do whatever it took to achieve that. Didn't know how many years it would take. I'm just going to dedicate my life to that till it happens. So I worked on a newspaper save my money, and then realized this newspaper was getting very old, very repetitive, and not very creative. And I decided to you know, save my money and, and go to India. That's so interesting that you first found your passion for travel. And then in some ways, your interest in photography came about as a way to make those dreams of adventure a reality. What a stroke of luck that you were actually so darn talented at it. So you quit your job and you bought a one-way ticket. What were your initial impressions of India? Like, What do you find so compelling about that part of the world? So in India, we had these extremes, different religion, different language, different food, different music, different smells. Everything's different. Um, the, the, the tremendous amount of people and there's extreme poverty and extreme wealth, people living in a very modern way, but yet people living in a very ancient way. So that, that's something I had never seen before. I mean, then you had the religion, you know, you had Hinduism and Christianity and, and Islam and Buddhism and the Jains and the Parsis. I had never met a Hindu. I didn't even know what Hinduism was. And then suddenly to see it was quite a, an event. So um, it was just a, an amazing experience, really uh, getting you into a whole new place kind of mentally. Um, and learning so much. Um, I mean, it take a lifetime. It would probably take several lifetimes to actually scratch the surface. There's so much to see. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that you were inspired by the photo essay on the monsoon by the New Zealand photographer Brian Brake when you were a child. 20 years later, you worked on your own monsoon essay in India. And wow, it's one of my favourite um, essays of yours. You fully immersed yourself in your work, literally wading almost neck high in the flooded streets with your camera to get the best shots. I can imagine that that water wasn't particularly pleasant, though. Oh, yeah. Well, that was... I started this essay on the monsoon. At first, I was very timid. I thought, well, I can shoot it from a sidewalk or from a window. And then that wasn't really working. I couldn't get to the right position. And then I thought, well, I'll work from a boat. So I got in a rowboat and I kind of maneuvered through these flooded streets. And I got some fishing waders, but then they got full of water. And I got to the point where I thought, you know what, I just have to literally jump in <laughs> and just get, you know, be in this these flooded streets up to sometimes my waist or sometimes someplace up to my chest. And it was really the only way to make these photographs because that's how everybody else was moving around the town or the village. And so I just thought, you know, despite all the incredible, you can imagine how dirty these streets were. There are dead animals floating around. Oh, 
Uh, and I just thought, you know what? I just got to go for it. I have to do my best and whatever it takes. To, and at night, I would get this sort of disinfectant and clean my body. Because <laughs> there were leeches, and, weren't there? Oh, yeah. And it's up in the mountains, there were a lot of leeches. And in Bangladesh, in the mountains there, in Nepal, oh, my God, you'd find yourself with literally like 20 leeches. And somehow they would crawl into your shoes. No, no. <laughs> but it's just the idea of this thing sucking your blood. <sighs> No, creepy crawlies, but totally worth it in the end because those images you took were so compelling. I actually think that that essay is one of my favorites of your work and I thoroughly recommend listeners going and checking it out. Uh, But instead of looking down on your subject, you capture these from the point of view of someone swept up in the floodwater after the monsoonal rains and just in the depths of this filthy, filthy water. And it shows the lengths that you go to to perfect the shot, putting yourself in unpleasant and even risky situations So I wonder how far you would go for the sake of a good photograph. I'm sure that's an important question you've had to ask yourself on countless occasions whilst you've been on assignment. Well, I think you always want to work inside a margin of safety when you think about risk. But sometimes you don't want to be timid. That would be the worst thing, I think, to regret not having, you know, really gone for the great shot. So I think you just have to have a kind of a calculated risk and um, let the chips fall where they may. I mean, when you're in a, I haven't photographed in an area of conflict or a war zone for 25 years or so, but I think when you're there, the time to reevaluate is before you go. I think once you're there, you have to say, you know, I I made the decision to be here. Now I have to really do the best I can. Mm. And what do you think is one of the craziest things you've done for the sake of capturing a photograph? Well, I had this small plane in, in Slovenia thinking it was very kind of matter of fact and there was no risk. I, I thought I'd done this, uh, you know, a hundred times, hired a plane, hired a helicopter, uh, taking the door off the helicopter that was all pretty routine, but um, the pilot just made an error. We were going 40 miles an hour. It went from that to zero in a second and a half, two seconds or something like that. And it ended up, uh, this small plane crashed into this lake. <laughs> Uh, you know, you suddenly the plane flips and you're upside down. There was no enclosure. There was an open cockpit. As soon as we hit the water, we were submerged in the water, cold water. I mean, it was February in this alpine lake. I had a seatbelt on. I had a winter jacket on. I couldn't see. The water was very cloudy. I was unprepared for this moment and vulnerable. And I wasn't sure how to get the seatbelt off. And I thought, you know, I'm going to die. Oh, my gosh. And did everybody survive? Well, it was just myself and the pilot. He got out before I did. And uh, I kind of wish he had come back to get me. Oh, my goodness. Of course. Yeah, I've been in all these war zones. I thought, this is not the way I envisioned my life ending. (laughs) Yeah. was doing aerial photography on a sunny day in February in Slovenia. Anyway, fortunately, I was able to get out of the plane. But it was really scary to say the least. I'm not a huge fan of small planes and that story just about confirms my worst fears. Would you say that's the closest near-death experience you've had whilst on a job? Yeah. I mean, Afghanistan, you know, when you're in a firefight or when you're in a combat situation, you know, there's bombs and artillery, there's mortars and small arms, and then there's the planes dropping 500-pound bombs. And it's completely terrifying. And uh, you just start to wonder, like, what the hell am I doing here? Why am I here? What photograph is worth uh, being blown up for? Mm. And uh, and a lot of the fighters I was with were also completely petrified and some kind of frozen in, in action mm. because you know that you could die at any any second. Mm. 
And do you think, I mean, you spend a lot of your earlier career covering conflict zones. Do you think that it's worth putting one's life at risk? Absolutely not. No, I, I, mean, I think that their stories need to be told. I was never really a combat photographer looking for the bang bang. I was more interested in the refugees, the people fleeing from their villages under attack. But sometimes the situation was so fluid that even though you're photographing uh, the civilian population, uh, still things can go terribly wrong. And sometimes you get drawn into situations where you think, well, this is a pivotal time in this particular fight and I want to photograph it. I want to kind of be there. So yeah, you kind of get sucked into the situation. and But again, you're really, uh, you could get killed at any moment. Mm, it's so remarkable what journalists, photographers and TV crew do to cover these stories that need to be told, but at great risk to their own lives and safety. Now, I wanted to get onto talking about Afghanistan and you've led the conversation to the topic perfectly because that's really where your career kicked off and you've covered countless stories from that region since. You first visited when you were living in India in those early years as a photojournalist. So what drew you to Afghanistan initially? Well, I was I had been in the plains of India. It was sort of May, incredibly hot, unbearably hot. So I decided to go into Pakistan and go up, up into the mountains, up into the Hindu Kush. So I, I got in a Jeep. It was a Jeep full of like 10 people. I, was, I had rented one seat. <laughs> we got to this place called Chitral, which was very cool and very high altitude. And I was in a very cheap hotel, $2 a night or something. And I met these Afghan men who were said they were refugees from this war that was raging literally just over the next mountain range. Wow. And they were explaining that the you know their villages were being bombed and people were fleeing for their lives. And they said, well, you know, you're a photographer. We'd like you to come in and tell this story. I didn't know who they were. I didn't really know that much about the war that was going on. But I just, it seemed important. It seemed like a, an adventure. And I was looking for a story to tell. And uh, they were very earnest and very sincere. And I decided just to, to go. I didn't speak their language. And uh, the one person who did speak English, didn't, we didn't embark on this journey together. He's kind of passed me off to some, some fighters and Wow. So I just wandered around the mountains of Afghanistan for a couple of weeks and eventually we got to where the fighting was. Steve, can I just press the pause button on that for a moment? I'd love to hear the story about crossing the border into Afghanistan. I mean, you must have been quite apprehensive putting your complete trust into a group of rebels whom you'd never met before you bumped into them in a hotel in Pakistan. And then you go and you do this incredibly courageous thing of heading into an area of conflict to tell their story. And in order to get across the border, you had to dress up in disguise by wearing the traditional garb, what's known as the shawar kameez. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Well, we started the journey from uh, Chitral up in the northern area of Pakistan. But to cross the actual frontier, we had to walk past kind of outposts of Pakistani soldiers. So I had to be in disguise. I had to shave my head. I, I got a beard and dyed my hair black. I put all my cameras into kind of a burlap gunny sack. I had the shower kameez, which was, uh, they, they gave me a particularly dirty one that um, had mud all over it and everything. So I looked like I had just come from a construction site and was, I guess, heading home. And you know, up in the, that area of Afghanistan, it's called Nuristan, the people often look very different. There's a lot of blue-eyed, uh, blonde people who look more European, and uh, they never suspected that I was a foreigner. Once I got over the border, we ended up just kind of sleeping outside under a tree and eating 
you know, mulberries off of a tree or we stopped by a farmhouse and they give us some bread and some goat's milk. And we did that for like three or four days until we got to a village. And then we got some proper food. I got into a, a bed and uh, we got to the front line where the fighting was taking place. And that was the first time in my life I could actually hear gunfire. And, you know, there were casualties and, and people were going and coming from the front. And I wanted to kind of get closer and closer to where the fighting was. I, I was living with these people. A lot of them became friends. Eventually, a few of them spoke English and they explained the situation. I really got kind of sucked into the story and cared about uh, what was happening to these people. The fact that their villages were being decimated and in many cases, like burned to the ground. So I just I went back over and over again. I went back like 30 times to Afghanistan over the years. So you're living there for a few weeks with the rebels, and then the Russian invasion happens at the end of 1979. And suddenly it becomes a big international story and ultimately launched your career as a photographer. Can you tell us about what happened? Well, at that time, there were not many photographers or journalists covering this story or photographing. So I was one of the first to go. And I mean, before the Soviets invaded, I had already spent six weeks in Afghanistan. So when they went in and around Christmas of 1979, and the kind of international press didn't really have any pictures, I had pictures ready to be published. And I started being published in literally magazines all over the world. So my work started being seen. And I started getting assignments based on that work, which was, I guess, my big break, because I think otherwise it probably would have taken years to get to that same point. Now, just a quick reminder for myself and for the listeners, just to keep this in mind, this is before digital photography, and at this time you were working with film. How did you get the film out of the country and to the publications? That must have been quite a task. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd take it out of Afghanistan and go by bus from border to Peshawar, then to Rawalpindi, Lahore, then over into India. And then I would ship my film from Delhi. It was this three-day process wow. that I have to find, like, who can carry the film by hand back home. So I'd have to find these trusted travelers who would agree to take my film. Steve, it's so hard to get my head around as a travel photographer who has only ever worked with a digital camera. It's really hard to get my head around how difficult it used to be to send your pictures to the publisher. But you're crossing into Pakistan. You're at great risk of being arrested. So how did you protect your precious film? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> when I came out of Afghanistan, I decided, you know, if I get arrested and they want to confiscate my film, I'm going to have to hide this film in the kind of the hem of this shower kameez or kind of sew it into like a third pocket. And, and then I would put dummy film in the camera and roll the film back into the cassette and hope they can't find it. Ah, oh, that's ingenious. Now, I'm sure there's not an interview that goes by without you being asked about the Afghan girl, Shabat Gula, that was featured on the cover of National Geographic's June 1985 issue. But not asking you would be like not asking Leonardo da Vinci about the Mona Lisa if I lived <laughs> in Italy during the Renaissance. So can you tell us the story of the Afghan girl and how that image came about? Well, I photographed Shabat Gula, you know, the Afghan girl, while I was photographing along the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. At the time, there were 2 million refugees that had fled the fighting and refugee camps literally up and down the border, hundreds of them. I went into dozens of them, but one morning I was outside of Peshawar and I wandered into a tent, a classroom. I heard these voices coming. I had photographed all different facets of life of the refugees, but this was one that I thought would be particularly interesting. 
uh, I went in and I asked the teacher, can I photograph your class? She invited me in and I, I looked around and I right away noticed this one little girl with these incredible eyes off in the corner. And, and suddenly, like, kind of everything else disappeared. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, this could make an amazing portrait. And I thought that's like the only thing I want to do in this classroom, like right now, is photograph this young girl. Um, she really seemed to in some ways tell the story of these Afghan refugees. I mean, she had this kind of haunted look, although she was very beautiful. She had this incredible, uh, I don't know, it was this um, look of somebody who's sort of seen too much. Mm-hmm. She was an orphan. Her parents had been killed. She had to flee her country when she was you know, 12 years old or 11 years old. So I, I photographed the class. I photographed some other girls, but eventually I came to her and asked the teacher and asked her, you know, can I photograph, hoping, you know, praying that she would agree. And so uh, I think she was curious about, you know, who's this strange man dressed in this funny way and he doesn't speak our language and he has his camera. She had actually never been photographed. So I think uh, I think some of her look, part of it's just curiosity about, you know, a wonderment of who, who could possibly be this strange person. So she agreed to sit down for a bit. And I, I made a few frames, I made a few pictures. And then she uh, kind of looked into my lens and then she kind of got up and went back to play with her friends in the classroom. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I was still working and she decided that the, the portrait session was over. <laughs> and I was going to think, oh my God, I hope that it's in focus. I hope I had the right exposure uh, and all that. But then it was already, you know, kind of too late. And, um, I, you know, I, I thanked everybody. And, uh, you know, that was the time of the film and I didn't really know what I had until about two months later. Wow. Uh, I mean, with film, you, especially when people are moving and there's noise and dust in the air, you never really know if you have what you hope you have. Mm. I mean, you don't really know if you got it. And after a couple of months, I went back and was very grateful and happy that, uh, you know, that it was actually, you know, the pictures of what I thought it was. So it was only then that you realized that it had turned out okay. It's really one of those rare instances where all the elements that make a good portrait kind of came into alignment. You know, the background was was just right, the light on her face, what she was wearing, the color combination between her and, and the background and the expression. Everything was just there. It didn't require any um, massaging or any direction or anything. It was just, I literally just was there to photograph the way she was. And uh, she just looked into my lens and after, a, I don't know, probably a minute, uh, it was over and that was it. When you first looked at that image, did you know that it was going to change your life the way that it did? Did you know that it was this magical shot? Well, I, I knew it had, I knew it was strong. I knew it had all those elements that I, you know, the light was just phenomenal. But, you know, there's really no way of knowing how far it would go. What do you think it is about that portrait that captured the world's attention and still resonates with people today? Well, I think it's a combination of this kind of haunted look, uh, this incredible, beautiful eyes with this this little girl who, who has a wonderful look. I think part of it, it's this genuine, authentic quality. You can tell that her dress, her garb is torn. Her face isn't particularly clean. Mm. And she has this kind of ambiguous expression. And I think that there's a sense of uh, dignity and perseverance, I think. I don't even think you necessarily have to know she's a refugee. It's just that clearly this girl is poor, disadvantaged, yet she has this dignity 
and an expression that she's going to move forward and not give in to unfortunate circumstances in her life. Mm. I think that that's, yeah, I think there's a strength in her expression, which is conveyed in the picture. Mm. And that piercing look she gives is completely unforgettable. And you went searching for the Afghan girl many, many years later. How did you find her? Yeah, we went back 17 years later. I thought, you know, everybody wanted to know her name and what happened to her and what her life was like now. So we went back and tried to find her. I, I thought it will never in a million years locate this. We don't have her name. We don't know anything about her. And we went back to the same refugee camp. And lo and behold, we were able to locate the school where I photographed her. I found the teacher who had retired, but we were able to find her. And we were able to piece together a trail of where we could find her. We showed her picture to like hundreds of people in the camp. And finally, uh, one man came forward and said, oh, yeah, I know her brother. Then everything kind of fell into place. Wow. It was really a miracle to be able to find her. When you did finally locate her, how did it feel to see Shabbat Gula again after all that time? I was grateful to know that she was alive. Mm. And that her life was, she had a family, she was married, she lived in a village in Afghanistan. And I was very happy that she was doing as well as, as could be expected under the circumstances. Did she realize how famous she was? Like, did she have any idea of how important that photograph was? She had no clue as to uh, any, she remembered the day in the photograph. She had never seen it, but she had kind of figured it. Uh, that was the end of it. So she was surprised and perplexed and, and a bit, you know, uh, why are they, who are these people? Why are they bringing me this picture? But I think quickly her and her husband realized that this was a promising opportunity. And we explained that the picture had been reproduced like millions of times. And this was a picture had inspired people to come and work in the refugee camps and that she had become this sort of symbol of Afghanistan. And mm. Afghans were very proud of of her in the picture. And, and I think that uh, eventually we, we wanted to help her, compensate her for the picture, help educate her daughters. You know, there was a school started in her honor. So, you know, I think a lot of good came. I think it changed her life in a positive way. Wow. What a miraculous story. Steve, thank you so much for sharing it with us on The Escape Artist today. Now, having a guest as well-traveled as yourself, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about some other destinations that you've explored around the world. So what would you say is the most surreal place that you've ever visited? Yeah, the Galapagos Islands uh, off the coast of Ecuador is really one of the most surreal places I've ever been. It was a place that I've always heard about, always wanted to go. It was very remote, difficult to get there, expensive, but a place that I would say going back to when I first learned about it in high school, I dreamed that that would be a place that I would go to. Even before I was a photographer, it did not disappoint being able to be in such close proximity to the wildlife, the birds and the different uh, you know, iguanas and the seals. It, it was really uh, magical and, and a beautiful place. And you really felt at times that you were back in a kind of a prehistoric place and a kind of a rare privilege to be able to travel there. And it's completely, there was no sign of civilization. It was just you in this ancient landscape with these birds and animals. It's unforgettable. It's, I think it's one of the places in the world that I have treasured the opportunity to be able to go there. Oh, it sounds so otherworldly. And what do you think was a highlight from that trip to the Galapagos? I think for me, the most magical part was the solitude of being able to walk 
alone through these the birds nesting. You had the sea lions, which kind of come up on this beach uh, with their young. Uh, actually, also um, going underwater was quite an experience because you're really uh, right there with the fish and the, the seals and these crabs, these beautiful red crabs crawling over these iguanas, all all happening in close proximity. And there you are alone being able to witness this, something that was probably unchanged for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe longer. It's something which you never see anywhere else in the world, and it's something which I'll never see again. So it was really uh, amazing. How utterly magical. I would so love to visit there one day. Another question that's always fun to ask guests, and I'm looking forward to hearing your answer, where is the strangest place that you've spent the night? Oh, the strangest place I spent the night was in a monastery oh. up in Ladakh in the Himalayas. It was a Buddhist monastery, and I was there with a friend, and we found ourselves, it was nightfall, we couldn't get a, any transportation back to our hotel, and we were in this monastery, so we were really at the mercy of their hospitality, and they offered to let us sleep in one of the, the halls where they chant. And um, again, you just can't believe your luck of being able to be in this sleeping in this monastery full of uh, Buddhist monks. And it was funny because we were kind of laid down on this mattress to sleep. And one of the monks was playing this. Remember that song? Everybody was Kung Fu fighting. And it, it's like, what a bizarre, you know, here you think they're going to be, uh, you know, chanting and beating their drums and in this life of... Uh, asceticism and prayer and meditation and, and they were playing this kind of rock and roll song it was very fun <laughs> that is so unexpected it must yeah. have been in complete contrast to the very serene setting i'm trying to imagine the monastery can you paint a picture for us well, the monastery looked as easily it could have been unchanged for 500 years. It was up on a cliff surrounded by these snow-capped peaks, no electricity. It just um, And the monks, again, nothing really, no sense of anything from the modern world. And um, all the monks were wearing maroon robes. You know, their heads were shaved. Everything was maroon. Their cloak, their robes were maroon. They wore these uh, you know, hats. And they lived in these little, like, cloister in some cases, there were dormitories. It was a very monastic life. And it was it was like a big movie set. You felt like you were on this uh, unlikely setting. And it seemed more like these guys were from central casting. But it was the real thing, the real McCoy. But very, very kind, very gentle, and uh, very hospitable. You know, in the morning, they got us up at like 4 o'clock in the morning. And they started praying and during their morning uh, puja. And then we got up and the sun came up. We uh, walked out to the road and got a bus. But uh, a night I'll never forget. I firmly believe that it's always when things don't quite go to plan that the best travel memories are created for sure. Now, you're especially known for your portraits of people all around the world. So I'm eager to know if you could take a photograph of anyone from anywhere in any time in history, who would it be? Well, I, if there was anybody in history, I think it would be Buddha. I would just like to spend time with him. And apart from the photograph, I think it'd just be fun to talk, ask him some questions and uh, have him come alive. I mean, to see him in the flesh and actually sit down and have a conversation with. I think it's more the conversation than it would be the, the photograph. But uh, either way, I think that he would be my first choice. 
I knew that you were interested in Buddhism, but I didn't expect you to say that. So what a fascinating choice. As the theme of this podcast is the link between travel and creativity, I would love to hear some more about your creative process. So when you arrive in a new destination, how do you set out to explore or prepare for capturing the environment you find yourself in? Like, do you jump straight in or do you take your time? Well, the first thing I do when I get to a new place, I just want to walk around and get the vibe of the place almost without a camera, just to go there and just sort of see what's unique about it and do it in a very kind of slow, relaxed manner. And then once I kind of start to identify what makes that particular place unique or areas of opportunity to photograph. But I think first, you just want to enjoy the place and understand it and not really think so much about photography or making pictures, but just talk to people, um, ask questions, get lost. Maybe have a guide who can explain some of the history or some, some of the things which aren't evident on the surface. Enjoy the, the place and, and sort of try to understand what makes the place tick. How do you feel when you're taking photographs? Like, do you get in a zone? Is it meditative? Do you become hyper-observant? Like, what does it feel like for you? Well, I think you want to get to a point where you, yeah, it is kind of a meditative state where you start to observe things. I mean, usually when we're walking around, we're going someplace, we're thinking about, you know, you know what we're going to do or what we're going to have for lunch or whatever. But I think you can get into a particular place when you're photographing where you're really present in the moment and you're really ob- observing uh, your surroundings and sounds and the people without being distracted with thoughts about you know, yesterday or tomorrow or whatever. Mm. Just being out in the world and appreciating being alive and looking at things in a very innocent way and in kind of a new way. I mean, we've walked past thousands of trees over our lives, but how often do we actually take the time to study it or look at it or really get close to it or it could you know it could be anything a sidewalk or a particular road but to really try and look at it in a, in a kind of a appreciate it in a new way in a different way in a time of instagram where the same photos seem to be taken time and time again and millions of people have access to cameras even if it's just their smartphones how do you avoid cliche when it comes to capturing a subject that's been photographed so many times before well i don't really consider myself with that so much obviously you're aware of eiffel tower or you know the taj mahal and and it's been photographed but i think you just want to photograph it in your own way and enjoy it and yeah see if how can i make this my own how can i make it different i think spending a lot of time on it i mean i think if nothing's really uh free in this world i mean i think if you want something special you know you need to spend time with it and if you can devote the time then you can probably dig deeper Mm. i mean sometimes pictures fall in your lap and sometimes it takes a bit of effort. I'm sure some of our listeners are keen shutterbugs and are making mental notes listening to your advice right now. And some of your fans might be interested to hear about your brand new book, In Search of Elsewhere. Can you tell us about it? Oh, yeah. My latest book is really a result of uh, digging deep into my archive that in some cases I hadn't seen uh, over the past 40 years. So I've been scanning uh, thousands of pictures, which have been really uh, untouched over the years. You know, I kind of move so quick and often you make a first selection 
and uh, you put the pictures aside and then you don't come back to them for quite a long time. And I think it was great to go back and rediscover some pictures which I hadn't seen for decades and to try and put them together in a poetic sequence. Oh, it's so exciting that there are previously unseen photos in this collection too. Is there a photograph that you uncovered whilst going through your archive that you find especially interesting? Well, there's one picture in Cuba which I find very uh, poignant in that there was this dress shop with this really quite elegant, beautiful, useful mannequin in the window. And the look is very hopeful and kind of forward thinking and all that. And on the street is this woman who clearly has had a very difficult life walking next to this picture window. And the juxtaposition, I think, is, is very kind of powerful. Mm. On the one hand, you have this sort of fantasy of hopes and dreams and then the reality of of life being difficult, a lot of struggle. Mm. I don't know. It's somehow the life is, well, it's just the, the good with the bad. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy and study the photographs for myself. We're going to have to wrap up soon, but before we go, can you share with us a secret little place that you know that our listeners might not have considered venturing? Well, I think that uh, one of the magical places in the world for me is Mandalay in Myanmar, which has all these wonderful temples and back alleyways and monasteries hidden off in the uh, in these very secluded areas. There's literally thousands of pagodas which are, are invisible, but once you kind of get off the beaten track, I find it one of the most fascinating areas in the world. And it's it, not only the city, but within a radius of five or ten miles, there's this incredible uh, little nicks and crannies which yield so much beauty and poetry. I've been there so many times, I'm going to be going back again next year. Mm. It's sort of the the gift that keeps on giving. And I always look forward to going back and and finding new places there. Oh, yet another magical place to add to my wonder list. Now for a philosophical question I wanted to throw at you, Steve. As someone who has really made a life of exploring the world, why do you think that travel is so important? I think it's important to travel because you realize that there's other people in the world, other ways of living, other religions, other cultures, which we need to respect. And I think once you meet these people and you realize that they're the same as anybody else, whether they're, you know, Hindu or Buddhist or Muslims or Christians or whatever, we're all kind of in this together. And there's so much beauty in the world. And a lot of times their struggles are the same as ours. And they've approached life in a different way. And sometimes it's just fascinating to see how we all do the same thing in different ways. So I think travel is really important. I could not agree with you more. And lastly, where are you dreaming of escaping to next? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's still places that I want to go back to. I mean, I still, after 40 years, want to go back to India and see old places and see how they've changed or go to new places that I haven't been to. Um, I've never been to uh, places like uh, Kyrgyzstan or some of these places in Central Asia. I think that would be interesting, uh, Azerbaijan or uh, or Iran, for that matter. I, I would love to go to Iran. That, that's a place that I'm looking forward to going to. I, I have an exhibition there now, but I'm not able to actually get there because I can't get a visa. So eventually I'd like to go and explore uh, Iran. It's a Great heritage, uh, you know, great culture, and uh, just want to get there at some point. Oh, well, I hope that you do, because I'd love to see the evocative images that you capture from that journey. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on The Escape Artist. Thank you so much for sharing your philosophy on photography and your incredible travel stories with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. 
That was the award-winning photographer Steve McCurry, truly one of the most important visual storytellers of our time. For a real visual treat, look out for Steve's brand new book, In Search of Elsewhere, which is a unique collection of previously unseen images from over 40 years of travel. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and review so that others can discover this podcast as well. And that's a wrap for season one. Thank you so much for tuning in the last few months. 2020 has certainly been been a year for the history books. I promised you escapism and I hope I delivered. Keep in touch on Instagram at Escape Artist Podcast and see you soon with some more wild and whimsical adventures in season two of The Escape Artist.